Welcome to the debut episode of Conversations with Canaries. Today, we will be exploring the relationship between education and media literacy. But first, who are we and why are we showing up on your sound waves? My name is Lindsay Newman. I work in nonprofits across the sector in a variety of roles and am a co-founder of American Canary. Katie? Uh, hi, I'm Katie Baxter, Catherine Baxter, as some people know me. Um, I am a researcher, educator, writer. Um, I also work in, in the nonprofit field. Um, I am a co-founder of American Canary. Uh, I've taught at university, at University of Edinburgh, and I've also taught third grade. So I'm bringing both of those experiences to this conversation. Bird? Hi, uh, I'm Bridget Heine, also a co-founder uh, for American Canary. Uh, I currently work as an assistant professor of digital media production at a state university in New York. Uh, I also have worked as a creative director and a digital media creator of all kinds for the last decade. Uh, and I'm very excited to be here with you all and thank you all for tuning in today. So... We want to let you all know that if you have any response to this or reflections on the questions that we ask and reflect on today, please feel free to visit our website, AmericanCanary.org. The first question that we are going to tackle is, what do you view as the relationship between education and democracy? How does media literacy fit into that in the 21st century? So I see the relationship between education, media literacy, and democracy as essential. Since the fundamentals of democracy rely on this idea of having a group of informed citizens, right, a group of people who understand the impact of their choices into their everyday lives and into the construction of the democracy we work in, then education can be seen and framed as an essential component to that. And it's essential not only to the progression of democracy, but really its survival. And when we think about where we are right now, we're in this digital age, digital era. I don't have to outline to all of you what that means, uh, because we are all consumed by the technological world, especially in, in this time during the pandemic. We're no longer in this realm where everybody is trying to be a factory worker, right? You get out of high school and you go work in a factory. That is why and what our education systems were set up to create in the industrial era, right? We have now surpassed that need to create, you know, a person that is able to sit and replicate functions robotically, right? We now need, as more and more technology becomes essential, not only to our daily lives, but to the, the, you know, our working lives as well, we need to develop a more resilient and adaptable mindset so that we can function within and be critical of the media and technology we're using. Thanks, Bird. Uh, great points. And I'm going to build on some of what you said. So the whole idea of democracy, going all the way back to Plato and Socrates, uh, relies upon an informed and educated populace, right? Without it, it just doesn't work. And so in the United States, we've, we've got a really rich history and tradition of prioritizing and valuing this relationship between education and democracy. So thinkers like John Dewey and others in the early to mid-1900s really catalyzed the public education movement, um, whose intention was explicitly to harness education as a democratic mechanism. 
to give people such possession of themselves and their minds that they could live in a way that would uphold democratic values. So values like critical thinking, cooperation, dialogue, truth. And so that they would become active agents in shaping the society they live in rather than uh, acting as passive, easily swayed and confused bystanders who can't detect logical contradictions, blatant falsehoods, dogma, uh, and all those priorities that really aren't in the interest of democracy. So while this was kind of the original intention of public education, we've fallen very far from this ideal over the last four and a half decades, I'd say. And this hasn't been incidental. Uh, it's been the result of direct policy changes that have embraced values of standardization, linearity, uh, obedience, and conformity over those more lofty ideals that I mentioned before, uh, and, and a system in which the priority was to prepare people to be workers, not necessarily a system that prepares them to be discerning voters. Um, also, in parallel to this, we've seen a huge increase in government funding to private and charter schools, which has skewed the educational landscape in such a way that it doesn't ensure equal access to high-quality education for all. And this has really set the stage for the incredible inequality that we see in our society today. So all of this was a problem before we entered into this digital age. And now if you combine that decline in our public education system with an informational ecosystem that's kind of inarguably designed to distort, to outrage, to polarize and spread misinformation, it creates a very difficult environment for people to be able to discern fact from fiction, truth from ideology, demagogues from decent politicians who are just trying to further your and our collective interests, and ultimately for people to be able to act as competent uh, and, and informed voters capable of fulfilling their civic and democratic responsibilities. So I think the connections among democracy, education, and media literacy are stark. Uh, I think they're tremendously important. And I think they're probably not made often enough. Oh, thanks, guys. That was very uh, informative. I would ask you, as teachers um, in your respective roles, how how have you seen that shift take place over over the the past couple years, even decades, um, just because of that digital component and how that's even played into effect in education? Bird, do you want to start? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. So, uh, you know, I think this idea of a shift, and and I think any educator listening right now will will agree that these ideas are not new. Uh, I mean, media literacy has be, been being talked about within the realm of both primary and higher education since you know the internet spawned in the late '80s and became a public you know phenomenon in the '90s. It has been known that th th this is essential and. I think one of the hurdles and why we haven't seen a faster shift is that the infrastructure was not there. And over the past, you know, two decades, school districts, you know, under strict budgetary constraints have been working to kind of build this infrastructure of hardware and software needed for their school districts, for their students. You know, I live in upstate New York and in, in rural, among rural communities, and there are schools here that still don't have a computer for every student. And, you know, so this shift to a media and technology literate focus within our education has been way slower than the shift of the use in our personal lives 
And I, I think, you know, it's mainly to result in, in a couple things. One being, you know, huge budgetary restrictions. We as a federal government don't prioritize a huge amount of spending to primary education. When you look at, you know, the, the budget of our education and then compound the fact that most of that goes to higher education and federal uh, grants for students for uh, two-year and four-year degrees, then you can see there's very limited funds federally coming into schools and that puts the burden on states. And when schools are surviving to keep their buildings and their water and their those you know, basic infrastructure systems uh, maintained, pay their teachers, you know, a barely livable wage, you know, it's hard to then compound this, this need for a whole new technological infrastructure and, and, and then couple that with the lack of training and lack of ability to train teachers again, because of budget constraints and time constraints, you know, it just be, has created this slowly shifting uh, beast within our education system where everybody knows it needs to change, but we feel incapable of, of doing that to the speed we know we need to. Yeah, Bert, I, I agree. I think that change, that institutional change is so essential, but it's so slow and it mirrors kind of what we value as a society and how we've come to value those things is something we should all kind of be asking ourselves. But I think in my experience teaching university students and third graders, so quite different audiences, <laughs> the, the challenge it kind of transcends all these educational spaces is really um, one of the predominant paradigm in education, which is that kind of only those things that can be measured and tested are worth teaching or worth valuing um, and that or worth doing for that matter. So if, if we think about this as the kind of dominant logic that has been shaping educational priorities and, and also societal priorities for quite a long time, um, it leads really to a, a, a total exclusion of certain content areas. So, I mean, I was quite appalled in the third grade school that I was teaching at, which was a public tuition-free charter school. So the charter school movement is a whole other issue to unpack, but um, they completely cut out all civic, social studies, art, music curriculum that was not taught at all. Instead, they spent an extra two hours just teaching kids how to take tests. So practicing for what are called CMAS tests. So the Colorado State Standardized Assessments. Um, everybody should be appalled by that, but I don't think that anybody really knows that that's happening. And the, the other <laughs> flip side of this is that because they spent so much time preparing kids to take tests, they were also one of the most highly performing schools in Denver. Um, so they got more and more funding. And this way of doing things and these sort of priorities in education continued. So I think media literacy is also one of those things that the value of it is somewhat more intangible um, than, than people or than educators would like. So it's, it's hard to test and to demonstrate it quantifiably the value of someone being able to be conscious of the, the way that media is influencing, shaping, influencing and shaping their everyday lives, or for kids to be able to be aware of the fact that um, maybe that, that, that all the time that they're spending on the internet isn't good for their brains. There's a lot of disincentives to try to create this awareness and to build media literacy education into schools. I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> disincentives for building civics and social 
um, social studies into schools as well. So media literacy, I think, is an essential component of that. And I think what really has to happen is we have to have a shift in how we think about the role of education in our society and what we want it to look like. And I think more and more people need to be aware of the fact that across this country, education doesn't necessarily mirror what we, what many people would say are our values. Yeah, I think about that. And I think about in New York State, we've rolled out a lot of standardized testing, uh, Common Core being probably the most controversial system to ever hit New York State. Uh, and, and, you know, it, when that and as that's happening, and, and I think our, our state is realizing there was a lot of issues with this hyper standardization of uh, a, an old modeled system. And, and we've had a lot of in New York State, you know, more and more parents be like, well, well, what is happening, right? There is this kind of as they're seeing these changes and not understanding the benefit of them within their students, we're seeing pushback, I think, happening across the country and more and more parents, especially now that, you know, they have literally been put into the role as educator, have been in remote classrooms with their students. You know, in the last year, I went from just being a college professor to teaching pre-K and kindergarten, third and fourth grade, because I have two, two children at home that I had to emergency homeschool at the end of last year. And then due to, uh, you know, the the system set up by our district, we're as parents now really able to see, you know, what is happening in a way that I think we were standoff from before. Even myself, I've always prided myself on being involved in my children's education. But if three years ago you asked me like what was Common Core, I had a general understanding, but wasn't on a day-to-day -day invested in what was my child learning and how were they learning it. Right. And I think what I was able to do and see uh, in through the this pandemic and this, uh, you know, emergency remote learning we've all had to do with our children is that there is a disconnect, right, between what I feel they should be doing and what they're actually doing in their day-to-day -day classes. What are they actually learning and why are they learning it? I myself have been having these questions. And, and I know that more and more parents across the country are, are becoming aware of what is happening because we've been forced to jump into these systems head on. And I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, you talked about this value shift that needs to happen, Katie, and that it's part of the problem is that we as a society aren't prioritizing and valuing education, right? As a parent, we put the role of education onto teachers alone. And, and there was backlash at the beginning of the pandemic, parents, I'm not a teacher. I'm not the person that will educate my child where when did we stop seeing our role as parents as being the main educator for our children? Right? When did we stop as a society seeing that my neighbor being educated is beneficial to me? How did that happen? And, and why and when can we kind of start to reprioritize those values? And I think if, if we're going to think silver linings of the pandemic, hopefully more and more people are taking that away, that this is important. You know, what is happening day to day and in my children's lives is important. This is impacting not only what their future will look like, but what all of our futures is going to look like. And if we don't start taking that more seriously and start prioritizing 
that as a value in all of our lives, right? Education. I mean, how many times I have been ridiculed by providing information to people is sad to me. People have a disdain for highly educated people sometimes in this country because there is this pretentious kind of facade around idea of education that if we're more educated, we're less ourselves and we're more other people or the ideas of others where I see education as a way to find myself, right? Within all of the noise that is happening around me and this idea of perpetual growth within media literacy is an essential component to that. And I think that's part of the pushback from media literacy is because it requires that mindset, that perpetual growth mindset where you can never be, you can't take all the tests. You can't, like you said, Katie, you can't quantify media literacy because it's unquantifiable. It is something that is continually done and it's not something attained, right? It's something that we work at every day. So I, you know, I think that uh, I agree this idea of shifting our values is, is kind of at the heart of what we're trying to do here. Yeah, Bird. And just picking up on something that you said there, I think, you know, the stigma of education, of expertise, of science more generally that we've seen in the United States um, more recently, you know, these are all direct manifestations of a very confused and convoluted information landscape. And if we think about how also those, you know, in parallel, those disciplines and professions that further social critique and analysis have really been kind of systematically underfunded and um, also stigmatized. It's really not surprising that we've seen a corrosion of our public and civic institutions and corruption across uh, the political spectrum. So I guess just to kind of make those connections more clear, you know, when we're seeing such a devaluing um, and underfunding of civic education, public education, we probably shouldn't be surprised when that directly correlates with a decline in our body politic, in civic participation, in how citizens view their responsibilities as voters, and also just their individual responsibilities towards the other people that are a part of their community, their society. And I think um, media literacy absolutely factors into it because it helps us cut through uh, this this divisive rhetoric um, and kind of remember our responsibilities towards others. You know, and if we think as an educationalist, I've always viewed education uh, as something that should, in its most <laughs> ideal sense, equip people with the ability to think, act, and live freely so that uh, we as a society can collectively live up to these values of liberty, justice, uh, and civility that are really at the heart of a functioning democracy. I'm hearing a lot of words that denote timing and that denote shifts and uh, I think it's important to say that work moves at the speed of trust. And so figuring out in the education system how to trust different ways of approaching subjects and, and our teachers, uh, and also how to trust how to move forward is, is all great. And I love hearing you guys share. So that does, Katie, how you wrapped up what you your thought it does tie into the question of, of what you both would think the civic consequence of a society that does not value education or teach media literacy, what that would look like. I, I don't want to project 
too much doomsday. <laughs> but I think that as we're as we're shifting in, into this, everyone is a media user and and everything we're teaching each other and teaching ourselves constantly. How does that show up in in our state of democracy? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that there are profound civic consequences, and I think. Um... It's kind of precisely what we're experiencing right now in the United States. It's, it's a perfect manifestation of a neglect, I think, of this relationship. It, it's not too doomsday, I hope, but the, just the facts of the matter. We have really deep civil divides. We have a tendency towards kind of cult-like orientations and conspiracy theories. We have dogmatic opposition um, for, for really no reason whatsoever. We have mindless consumerism and an inability to cooperate, and then a broader neglect because our government doesn't actually work or mirror the values and priorities of its populace, a neglect of the basic institutions that really make up the civic infrastructure of our country. And the, the, real, <laughs> the real problem is that all of this dysfunction is making it really impossible for us to address the actual crises, the you know real crises that are looming over us in the 21st century. So it's a it's a difficult nexus of challenges, um, but I think it's imperative that we 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 take them on. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think I would just add in add in to your sentiment about thinking about you know we already are seeing the consequences of this. I mean, it's already in place. You mentioned, Katie, you know this, this these ideas behind messaging and. Uh, neglect of relationship. I love the way you frame that, this idea that, and, it, and it's putting the responsibility really on us. So much when we think of media literacy, we see a lot of blaming happening to the platforms. And I'm not saying that there's not better ways to be constructing and developing algorithms to be combating these issues. But when we think about this idea that we are part of the relationship and we are part of, and we create the media environment we consume and live within, it's easy to see that right now the environments we're living in are, are full of dis misinformation. They're full of this lack of civil discourse and this amplification of extreme messaging, creating this polarization or this false polarization and this amplified polarization within our political parties. We have these ideas, regardless of what political party you're on, that we are so far apart as citizens, right? And, it, and that is re a reflection of our media messaging and of the top political officials we have in this country and how polarized those representatives are. And because these figureheads have come to kind of be these uh, personifications of our different political parties, right? We as citizens have become to really hyper identify with political parties through this kind of increased and amplified messaging and tribalism, as you mentioned, Katie, that is happening online. We are able to, within Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, develop echo chambers that uh, perpetuate these ideas that and prohibit us from seeing kind of opposing points of views or more critical analysis. And I think it's easy to blame the platforms. And, and again, I think there is things that can be changed within them, but we really need to start looking at that neglect of relationship. And I, and, I, and I love, again, the way you frame that, because I think that the first step to media literacy is really reflecting upon 
our own consumption, our own access, how we analyze and evaluate and create media. What is our voice and what is the purpose behind it? And how are we perpetuating misinformation and messaging online? And, and that's taking the accountability of what is happening onto ourselves, which we're not maybe ready for in a, in a, in a society full of individuals <laughs> who, who uh, are, have been trained to kind of blame these higher powers for what is going wrong in our lives, right? As you said, this, this de-evolution of civic education has not given us this idea that what we do impacts everybody around us. This idea of collectivism, right, has kind of eroded from our country. And so when we're online, those ideas transform, right? We think we're just individuals operating, but everything we're doing online is, is, you know, affecting other people's information ecosystem. And we really need to become more conscious of that involvement, not only within our own values and how we perpetuate them, but how we are engaging with other people online and creating or harming the, this, you know, freedom of expression within these online spaces. I think a lot of times we focus on kind of the individual, personal ways that the media and technology is changing us. So how we relate to our own minds, our our habits, our our patterns, our daily routines. But we don't always talk about how it's changing, how we relate to each other offline how we connect with each other, how we humanize each other's stories and experience, how we can understand how people who have very different experiences come to have very different beliefs and views about the world. Um, and I think that, you know, as we, as we are rightfully learning to be more mindful of the ways in which these devices are hijacking our brains and impulses and the way that we, we communicate with each other, we also need to be aware of what it's doing to the kind of tangible, living, breathing world around us and to all those things that as primates were kind of developed to need in, in, in our interactions with other people. So um, facial expressions, body language, all of these things. I think when we think about how it can look as though we are incredibly polarized if you're just online and you know flipping between news channels, it's important to think about how um, those divides are exacerbated and, and that perception of that polarization persists because we don't really know each other as well. We don't speak across spaces. Whether you live in a city or whether you live in a rural part of the country will nine times out of 10 predict who you voted for. Um, and that's, that's something that should kind of jolt everybody into a realization that we need to be aware of how these online forces are shaping our lives and our interactions, but we also need to be aware of how they're shaping the, 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 you know, the living, breathing world around us and how we, how we know and relate to each other in a physical, tangible sense. And if you think, you know, mindfulness and meditation is all about connecting with your experience. And when more and more of our lives are kind of removed from our direct experience of being in the world, I do think it poses a challenge to how we come to know ourselves and, and, you know, our minds and our bodies and things. And, it's not going to be put back in the box. So as much as I would love to return to 
a, a day where experiential values reigned, I don't think that that's in the future. And it's about trying to find ways that we can still build that into our social lives and, and prioritize that, even when everything is pulling us away from that. Katie, that was beautifully said. And I, I think it's very important that we recognize that aspect. We are sort of coming up on, on our time here. So I want to ask the two of you to each share out, just because I know you so well and, and I know you can spit fire um, brilliant ideas about education and media literacy and, and how those two should fit together and how we should consider that concept to show up in the United States of America at this point in time. I guess what I would really love to see is excitement within our education system to do this work. I think right now there is this re, you know, resistance to doing this the right way because it's such a large task. Um, because there's so much unknown and because we don't know if the work we do today will matter five years from now, because everything will be different in six months in terms of technologically. Uh, but I think we need to stop shifting from thinking we'll have all the answers to be excited about finding all the questions and creating a resiliency and adaptability within ourselves to better navigate and create within media and technology and to harness all of these tools and devices uh, to you know, really help the purpose we each have within our lives and stop you know, giving ourselves to these machines and start really using them for our own benefit. Yeah, well put, Bird. And I, you know, I think that's a really important question, Lindsay, because it can be very easy to despair. And, and I am guilty of this sometimes when you look at how the fact that potentially our brains aren't really wired to, to be able to take on this kind of challenge. Um, I heard an example the other day where uh, it was a neuroscientist basically saying that we are foraging now for information like other animals used to, you know, forage for food. Um, and that that there are there are obstacles, neurophysiological obstacles to us being able to tackle this. But that said, <laughs> I really do think that education, and I've always said this, is is the key to the kinds of of internal and external transformations that we need. Um, and that it is the best tool that we have, the best value transmittal system that we have in place that has currently not really been utilized to, to facilitate the kinds of social changes that are required for us to become conscious of the power of our vote, of our voice, and to realize that it's, it's really not a foregone conclusion that we have to live in a society where, for most people, most of the time, work is boring <laughs> and, and unfulfilling. Uh, our environment is being trashed. Technology is increasingly ruling and increasing the pace of our lives. And People are divided and our politicians don't do anything. It really doesn't have to be that way. And it can feel like <laughs> those challenges are, are insurmountable. But if you have a theory of change that kind of starts small and looks at how individual change on a massive scale leads to social change, that all that we have are these sort of moments that we live in every day, there's a huge opportunity to, to kind of wake people up to the kinds of changes that need to happen. 
the ripple effect. I love that you ended with that, Katie, that <laughs> idea of the ripple. And, it, and it's, it's at the heart of, I think, what we're trying to do here in American Canary. I mean, it's one step a day. Media literacy is not attained in, in a week, in an hour. It's, it's something we work at each day. And I think being a, a civically engaged digital citizen, offline citizen, is something we do every day. It's, again, not something attained you know, in a finite time, but something that we choose to do and we choose to have a part of our actionable lives. And I think more and more people are looking for that outlet. And if you're out there and trying to find a way to navigate these spaces, uh, we're here with you and know that, you know, American Canary is, is working towards helping us all to build a better democracy within each of us. Our own internal democracy. <laughs> I love it. Doing the work of doing and thinking and feeling is important. So we at American Canary will continue to hold excitement for this work and to work on finding more and more questions to answer. And we will continue to explore topics like these. So please join us for the next episode and we welcome any questions you have as well. Feel free to send them over and we can hopefully address them at a later time, AmericanCanary.org. Thank you so much.